We acknowledge that we are settlers, recording this podcast from the lands and waterways of Hawaii and Bibbulmun country. We stand with the first peoples of the lands and waterways we occupy, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Kanaka Maoli peoples, as well as acknowledging our own peoples of Olohenga for our continued fight, our united fight for self-determination and land back. From sand to salt water, we extend our deepest aloha to Tupuna past, present, and future. We are leaning in, learning, and listening. Dombulavinaka, Maloni, and Talofalava. Welcome to the first episode of Sawatakin. My name is Emile Nguvule and I am a co-host of Sawatakin alongside the brilliant Brandon Takedena. In our first episode, we are speaking with my dear friend and big sister, Tsuka Mwalatsangibi. And when I tell you, gang, this is an emotional episode, I mean emotional. So you've been warned. <laughs> Let me start with some background info about Tsuka for those who don't know her. Tarika is a Fijian-Australian mother, artist, and educator who produces multidisciplinary projects centering the counter narrative of marginalized histories and knowledges through curatorial collaboration, photography, video installation, and publication. Tarika is a lecturer in the School of Communication and Creative Arts at Deakin University and has a PhD from the School of Art and Design at the University of New South Wales on the topic Somatic Sotia, Commodity Agency and the Fijian Military Body. So, let's get into it. Yandra, Yandra Vinaka Tarika, welcome to Slowata Kin. We are so 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 humbled to have you with us today on the podcast it's an absolute privilege and Bula yes Bula Vinaka we I'd love it if you um could introduce yourself and um tell us where you're based sure yeah uh, so my name is Tarika Bolatangivi and I am based in uh Wurundjeri and Bunurong country in uh, Victoria but I grew up in Lutruwita in Nipaluna Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned that you were you grew up in a Luchawida um in, in Tasmania. And I was wondering if we could um start there with our Telenor um as we kind of like begin to learn more about you and, and and your journey. Could you tell us about yeah, your experience growing up in, in, in Luchawida where um were there many uh, Pacifica Islanders in, in your neighborhood, in your area around you? Um what was that like? No, not at all. Um so yes, yeah, so mum and I um, lived sort of between, I was born in, in uh, Nipaluna in Hobart uh, in the mid-70s and then mum moved us between my father's village uh, in Silvervo in Fiji and between Sydney. So mum was working in Sydney at various times. We also had family in Burnie in the northwest coast of Tasmania, but those sort of formative years were spent between Sydney, Silvervo and Hobart and we didn't really have many other um, Fijians broader Pacific Islander community there when I was growing up there was a family who mum is quite close with um, we're still good friends with and, and mum was actually traveling with through Fiji in the 70s so we're still really good friends with them but you know we were kind of dispersed you know and would just sort of see each other occasionally the word exotic was used a lot when mum and I would encounter other families and mum was um, 
would be repeatedly asked, you know, where did you, where did you adopt this, this small South American child from? It was certainly, yeah, I didn't grow up surrounded by people who look like me. That's, that's for sure. So that was really interesting in terms of sort of how I formed my identity at a really early age. People assumed that I was either, well, mistaken for a bunch of sort of different ethnic origins for a really long time. People thought that I I was an Indigenous child for a really long time, but I had a really strong sense that I didn't belong on that land from like, I just knew I wasn't from here. So that I, you know, I never had, I never felt like I was home in Hobart, if that makes sense, even as a small child. Um, And maybe it's because we traveled a little bit that I never felt really grounded. And also I think because even if we weren't traveling sort of um, transnationally, but you know, we moved house a lot, you know, mum and I were just the two of us. Dad didn't join us until I was um, in primary school. So we did a lot of kind of just moving around. It was kind of a pretty bohemian kind of lifestyle. You know, mum was very much into sort of counterculture stuff. Um, we went to a lot of folk festivals and a lot of protests and that's kind of just what I was surrounded by, a lot of sort of flux, I would say, change, things that I guess I never really felt grounded in. So I don't know if that's a, <laughs> I don't know if I would do that for my own children, although we sort of have ended up doing that because of my partner's work. But I think it certainly speaks to kind of my sense of not really belonging from an, from an early age, but then later kind of wanting to investigate that through my arts practice and embrace that sense of kind of fluidity and not, uh, and not see it as a, a bad thing necessarily. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think like what you were speaking to in terms of like having a strong sense of not feeling that you were from here, like where you were, you know, growing up is something that, that definitely resonates for me as, as diaspora. Um, I don't know if you wanted to speak to that as well, Brandon, you know, growing up in Hawaii, we, I mean, we both, yeah, yeah, that kind of like dis, dislocation um, by ge- geography. Actually, we had this conversation kind of yesterday as well, <laughs> me and B, um, in so many ways that what you shared was very much resonated with my experience growing up here on the other side of the country and um, Binjarabnuan country and not seeing many Pacific Islanders um, in Tasmania, like in where you were, was there much of a Pacific community, but they just kind of like were not in the neighborhoods that you were living in or the spaces that you were entering? Or um, was it that, yeah, there wasn't really much of a community at all growing up? I would be guessing that there was just not much of a community. I, I mean, I, I had the sense that, so my dad ended up moving to Sydney um, and there were just more employment opportunities. The climate was better. So I feel as though there certainly were families and they're, you know, more dispersed. You know, we weren't connected with them in any way. And I think, you know, even even these days that, you know, the community is fairly dispersed. It's, it's certainly nothing like in Sydney. Even living in Melbourne, I noticed that the community is completely different. It's just it's a ge- sort of a geographic thing, I think, as much as anything. But yeah, so I certainly felt the difference when I would visit my family in Sydney. You know, for me as someone who's like very magnetized towards the sun, <laughs> I'll never understand like Pacific people moving to cold places. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, super grateful for you sharing that, Trika. I've never been to Australia, so <laughs> a lot of the context that you've mentioned, um, I'm trying to like 
be present and listen, uh, but also like I don't have a framework for these places. Um, and so, yeah. Um, but in terms of the story, I think there's a lot of like intersections, right? Um, growing up Pacifica, growing up, um, so I'm someone with Galawan, uh, Filipino and German. And um, I grew up in Hawaii, I'm a settler here. My family immigrated, um, I want to say in the 60s. And it's it's interesting, right? Like, I think I had the opportunity to grow up around folks who were vastly mixed, not just Pacific Islander, but also mixed uh, with different races, with a lot of Asian Americans. Even with that, it was a weird upbringing just because I think a lot of the folks that I was uh, in proximity to weren't in positions of like power and, and privilege. A lot of the folks I think who, I think, you know, growing up, like my school teachers were all Japanese American. I think I had like one school teacher who was like Pacific Islander. And so even with the proximity to a population that was, you know, again, mixed and there were Pacific Islanders, I wasn't seeing myself represented represented in just the social hierarchies, right? Doctors, lawyers, it was very much tailored to Asian Americans. And so that was a little disorienting for me, but I'm stuck by when you shared about how folks would, you know, the audacity to ask your mother, if, how did you adopt this South African child? <laughs> that, is, that is so sketchy. Um, and I'm sorry that has happened. I am curious, you, you mentioned, you know, when you went back to, when you're spending time with your family, what was that like, you know, transitioning from this, this space that was very uh, not ex- uh, inclusive of your identity, uh, you were being represented, and then to be near family members that, you know, your Fijian family members. I'm curious, what was that like for you? So I didn't meet my siblings until I was in year 11, and it was actually at my dad's funeral. So I was in Sydney as my mum and I used to travel there, you know, almost every summer holiday. My auntie in Hobart was looking after our flat while we were away and she called us and said there was a note from the Tasmanian police. We needed to give them a call and they said that someone called Sarah was trying to get in touch with us So we were, and they gave us her number in Sydney where we happened to be at the time and so we called her and that's when she told us that Dad had passed away and we didn't know he'd actually been ill. It was actually quite sudden. He got sick quite quickly. Because we were there, we were able to go to his funeral, which was at the Field of Mars in Sydney. And yeah, so I I met my siblings there. So I I knew that I had younger brothers and sisters, but I didn't know sort of how many. And really since then, I mean, they were very, very young at the time. You know, I was in my early teens and they were, you know, sort of probably about two to six years old. So we didn't sort of keep in contact for for a little while. And this was before mobile phones. Though I did used to, you know, look them up in the phone book whenever I was in Sydney and, you know, I would call occasionally. But really it wasn't until I think 1997 or 98 and I was in Sydney and I thought, look, I really want to reconnect because the kids were older then and I just actually just rocked up at the house in Waterloo and knocked on the door and they didn't know who I was, they didn't recognise me and then until we started talking. And so sort of since then we haven't not been in each other's lives. (laughs) People often sort of you know, we've got three or four different families that tend to keep in touch. And, and all the kids, that, you know, we, we all are in regular contact with each other and there's no animosity between the parents. It's just, it's really lovely. We catch up whenever we can and visit each other. And But we've all had very different experiences and, yeah, our upbringings have been completely different and very few intersections apart from the fact that, you know, we have a father who was the same person my sisters and brother in 
in Sydney have been a really huge part of my life and their diasporic experience has been quite different. You know, there's a couple in that family who've just never been back to Fiji. Uh, one of my sisters has been back to Suvavo and travels back there quite often, not to the village necessarily, but to, to Fiji. And her mum's family is from the Asawas, so she tends to, you know, to be more connected to that side. But yeah, for three of my siblings in Sydney, they've not they've not even been back to Fiji. So I feel really privileged that I've had that opportunity to kind of go back. And it's the same thing. Um, it's just I just rock up on on people's doorsteps <laughs> Un, unannounced, usually because mobile phones and phones. And so I just think the best way is to just kind of gently just kind of say hello. This is who I am, and <laughs> can I come in? <laughs> Let's have a cup of tea. And that's kind of how it started. And then, of course, over the last 15 years with social media, it's a lot easier for us to keep in contact and we're, you know, visibly and, you know, we're in each other's lives every day in that sense. So it's a completely different scenario. And I can't imagine what it would have been like growing up, you know, in what felt like, you know, isolated Hobart if I had have had connections like that. It must be so different for people these days. And I can see it, you know, I can see it through connections that, um, you know, my younger siblings and things. Yeah, my journey's been so different to my, my brothers and sisters. And, you know, I'm just really grateful that that we've been able to maintain such a beautiful and strong relationship, despite those kinds of absences and, and, and differences. Like, it's just it's been wow. amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Tarika. Yeah. It made me think about how we met. <laughs> which was through Instagram, which is another story that I share with Brandon and how I was like, yeah, you've, I think you followed me and I followed you back. And I was like, it just completely enamored by the work that you do and the journey, the documentation of your life and, you know, your work. Um, I think at the time you were doing a, a residency in Barbados. So I was like, who's this amazing Fijian woman? She's a mother. She's, she has this really cool photographic art practice and then we discovered that actually I grew up with one of your brothers um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then the world got really yeah. small again didn't it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so I used to spend the school holidays with one of your your twin brothers actually in up here the Fijian community um, was quite small at the time so everybody kind of knew everybody yeah it's just thinking about like the initiation of the communication like um, for me and you it was you know through social media but actually we already had that existing kinship connection um, yeah. that we just weren't aware of but also like I think what, what you were saying about you know back in those days there wasn't any you know phones text messages mm. you just rocked up and that is such a foreign concept now I was talking to my mom yesterday about like my mom was saying like, she's going to one of my cousin's house and I was like are you gonna message them to tell them you're coming she was like no no, no I'm just gonna rock up and I was like oh I think you should <laughs> I think you should message him. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, she was like, that's, Dr. Lawrence just, we just turn up. You don't, you don't message people. And I was like, I was like, I just feel like, like I could feel my millennial anxiety kicking in. And I was thinking like, mom, I really think you should just like be respectful by like turning up. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm just going to turn up and, and it's going to be fine. So I was thinking about that when you shared your story, just like, the confidence you know to to present yourself to your kin and say like hi 
this is me and my fullness. I'm your blood. And, you know, as you said, though, there's like not many intersections in our experience, maybe interests or where we're going, like that connection is strong enough for me to want to be here and to be involved in your life and vice versa like for me that is such that is so powerful and so beautiful and just I'm absolutely in awe and I've I've met your siblings I've met your sisters um every time you know like we we do something together in Sydney and they they come along and they're just so supportive and see just that small glimpse into the way that your family works and weaves in and out is just so so beautiful and it made me think about the work that you created for the Maramadina mm. exhibition, which was curated by the Vengir project out at Campbelltown Art Center, so about your father, Apenisa, and like the, the portraits um, of like the oral histories and, and the visual narratives and, you know, these like complicated nonlinear lines of memory, past, present and future of, of mm. different people like your your siblings and yourself and your father's wife how they all remembered your father and that was such a beautiful powerful work yeah I think about it all the time but like hearing you kind of like recant the story of meeting your siblings gives it a much deeper meaning now or context for me and it kind of like I guess leads us into our next question is you know for you your creative practice um, you talked about representation and, and Brandon touched on this conversation of representation what it means to see yourself kind of reflected in your surroundings, um, I was wondering, like, what influence that had and your desire to engage with photography as a creative medium? Yeah, oh God, that's really interesting because I was thinking about when I did grow up in Hobart, you know, not around community and, you know, very much, you know, a part of my mum's Anglo-Australian family, but visual connection with Fiji was, was through books and books from museums of artefacts and histories that were written by, you know, Western anthropologists and historians. And actually, I remember when I was younger, I used to make up stories because people would ask me questions wanting really exotic answers. So I would just make stuff up about, you know, yes, there are dingoes in Suva and all sorts of just weird stuff to kind of throw people because there was just this constant kind of, you know, that, that exotic kind of, you know, all of those, can I touch your hair? You know, are they freckles? You're wearing a bustle? Why is your butt so big? They were real things that people said to me when I was growing up. And yes, there was very little kind of, very little representation, people of colour when I was growing up. Later, you know, as a young adult, mum would take me to conferences, like feminist conferences and feminist book conferences and things. And so that's where I really started to connect with Indigenous Australian scholars and poets and artists and become familiar with their work. And so that's how I was kind of able to orient my, I guess, my interest in things other than what had been presented to me through mainstream education. But I think, was your question about photography? I asked because of photography, because that mm. is like what I'm most familiar with in terms of your practice, um, mm. aside from from your writing. But I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to answer it directly in relation to photography. But I think what you were saying about, you know, visual representation, seeing yourself in, self in books is, um, yeah, really, like, that's really beautiful. And I think connects really lovely to the rest of your creative practice as well, in a way that's interesting, if you wanted to share that. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think my interest in sort of visual imagery, it's sort of, I mean, I've always, I've always, you know, studied art and drawing and art history and been surrounded by those things 
you know, when mum would take us to, we would get the boat, like this is how, <laughs> this is how old school, we would actually get um, a boat from Devonport over to Melbourne, or I actually think it went to Sydney at the time, and we would go over for art exhibitions. So we would travel interstate for music and art, and like we'd come up to see the great masters shows and Picasso and the Sydney Biennial and that kind of thing. So I was really lucky to have you know, a mum who was kind of interested in all of those things and just to kind of be exposed to those, you know, from a really young age. So that kind of, you know, that sort of exposure to, you know, visual cultures from a really young age, you know, going to Anne's art, live performance, uh, um, performance art things and poetry and it's kind of just shaped the way I kind of see the world and the things that I value in the world are the things that I value in raising my own children as a part of their broader education because I accept that what they get in the classroom is just such a tiny, tiny piece (laughs) of what will make them whole, happy beings. So my formal kind of visual art stuff, I guess, happened probably end of high school and I actually went to this really cute little Catholic girls' school and one of the art teachers set up a darkroom which was in an unused kind of like rectory apart next to where the nuns lived. And she used her own money and just bought a camera, which was a 35mm film camera. And she bought an enlarger and she set that up and just said to the students that were in like, I would have been in either grade 9 or grade 10. And she said, look, I'm teaching myself how to use these things. If you want to come and learn with me, we can do it together. And I just fell in love with it. And one of the first things that I learned to do was to use her manual camera and use film. I wanted to recreate an REM film clip, so I was playing around with light and um, I think it was the film clip for Orange Crush, which is kind of crazy given that I went into kind of be really interested in, you know, impacts of, of nuclear testing and, and, and military service. But yes, yeah, so I, I was really taken by the lighting, the really dramatic photographic lighting as how I saw it. And so I wanted to recreate these stills. So I did that with a really good friend of mine who ended up, she's a dance hall DJ now, but we hired one of the little we booked one of the little um, music studios and had like two lights and we just gave it a go and we used Mrs Beck's camera and then we went and processed the film and I just I just completely fell in love with the whole process yeah that was in about grade nine I think and then my dad had not been paying his you know child maintenance and then Somehow government caught up with him and one day we were at the bank. This is such a silly story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I was getting some money out and there was a little bit more in there than I had expected for my like Oz study, which was like $20 or something. And mum said, no, 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 it must be a mistake. Don't spend it, don't spend it. And then a couple of days later she got a note from what is what would have been CES or something at the time, Centrelink, saying that they'd been able to catch up with dad's like taxation and so, the, you know, this was the money that he owed. So with that money, I went and bought my first camera and enlarger kit. And we were living in a little housing commission house, a little two-bedroom flat in Sandy Bay. And there was this tiny, tiny little space, which I turned into a dark room. So I had the enlarger on the um, washing machine. We didn't have a dryer, but I had that on the washing machine. And then a little bath. I used to wash all my prints in. And mum bought me, there was like a little tiny window in that bathroom and she bought me some you know like blackout fabric so I could do all my processing in there and yeah so then I just continued to kind of study photography through year 10 11 and 12 and just experiment on my own toning and 
using different types of film, all black and white. Yeah, and just really sort of started my practice then, I guess, and went to Hobart Uni for a little while. Actually, no, there was a big break there, but I won't go into that. But yeah, that that's sort of where my photographic practice started. Yeah, Tariqa, I'm just so grateful that you just gave us this genealogy of your practice and the stories that came with it. My mic was muted, uh, but I was like giggling when you had talked about, so the way I read it from my context in the US, we would call it like child support and how <laughs> uh, we love we love the child support came and paid for the camera uh, and really funded the, the, you know, gave you the tools to do, to pursue your passion, to buy the camera and to be able to even turn your room into a dark room. Like I just, I'm so amazed by the story. It's a good segue into the next question that we have in terms of just, you know, I know you mentioned it a little, a little bit, but like, what was your experience like studying something that you loved um, and that you were passionate about? I'm just really curious to hear. Yeah, it, look, it was never challenged. I didn't ever, I didn't ever have any expectations of myself, which is probably really bad. And I don't think anybody else had any expectations of me. So I feel like my life has just had never, never had any pressure to do anything because except sort of like just survive. I was the first in family, so I, no one sort of went to university expecting me to go to university. We really just survived. Mum was a single mum. She worked really hard to kind of to support us and we moved around a lot of, so much. I think I lived in 11 different places by the time I was 10. There wasn't that kind of roadmap for me to follow a particular career path. So, you know, I mean, I think at one stage, you know, I was playing a lot in punk metal, death metal bands, you know, and that was my trajectory. I kind of, you know, I finished year 12 and I didn't even think of going to university at all. I took, I just finished and I left Hobart with the band that I was in at the time and we moved to Melbourne and that was our thing. When I'm left that band and I moved back to Hobart it was kind of a moment for me to reconsider everything and you know I think um, you know I was pretty messy kind of teenager at that point late teens and I think something just kind of clicked and I thought maybe I'll I'll give university a go because some of the people that you know while I'd had this year off to go and you know play music you know a lot of my other friends had just followed that normal sort of expected path of year 12 and then into university. So the framework was there. There was some sort of familiarity because I'd done a lot of theatre work down at the university as a younger person. And so the space didn't feel hostile to me. I, I kind of had been around and Hobart is kind of like that because it's a small town and so events are happening in these spaces all the time so to kind of physically go into the university and start the process of, of studying wasn't hard the the difficult part was sort of mum and I struggling through the paperwork and I know students still struggle with that stuff I mean I was looking at some comments from graduate outcomes yesterday systems are still so difficult for people to navigate I remember I didn't, you know, I got my exit score from year 12 and they said, oh, well, she could do commerce. And I didn't even know what commerce was. And I just wanted to make art. So that was not an option. Um, yeah, so I enrolled at the art school. and But I, I also wanted to do a lot of like sociology and humanities things as well. So it wasn't wasn't really easy at the time. The, the system wasn't set up for you to do those kind of 
multidisciplinary studies, I guess. They really wanted you to just focus on one thing. I mean, it's completely different now, but at the time it was tricky, which is why I ended up in Melbourne because the course that I found here was more supportive of that. Yeah, I think what I want to uplift too in this, in hearing more of your story is, mm. um, and similarly, like we brought it up with, you know, Amelia sharing some of her story too, is that like the path is never linear. And I think a lot of folks, uh, especially folks our age, uh, millennials and even younger, right? I think there is, as you mentioned, there's there's a there's a format, right? There's a path that people think that they have to follow in order to um, be in these spaces of academia and to pursue careers, but. Uh, what I appreciate about your story is you were very much finding yourself, right? I'm also just really curious. What did you play in your bands? Oh, bass guitar. Ah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the underrated bass guitar. I love that. Tarika, as you were sharing, I was thinking about one of my favorite quotes of your many amazing quotes, um, where you say, like, the university may not look like you, but always know that you have a right to be there. I think, like, what you were saying before about, you know, being the first in your family, but, you know, to, like, pursue higher education in this way definitely resonates but for many like Pacifica Islanders and, you know, for definitely that's a narrative within my family, like um, being the first, actually, it's the opposite, right? There's a lot of pressure um, that people carry um, into these spaces and the expectations um, of, you know, what where that will lead, I guess, and, you know, for their families, for their future. Um, so it's really, yeah, I, I love that. I think what, you know, just echoing what Brandon said that because of, you know, your journey being so nonlinear, but also, um, you know, your, you having multiple interests, being in this band, going to art exhibitions with your mom, going to these, like, what, as you said, uh, counterculture events, the interest in sociology, all of that, how that played into what led you to that space is even though there's like, I guess, like, as you said, there was no pressure, you're already like, your cup was already so full, <laughs> you know, and that's like, that's really interesting and really exciting. Because I feel like for me, my experience going to university, I was like, so young, and I was a cup waiting to be filled, right, for people to tell me what to do, and how to learn and like, where this was going to like, you know, give me security in my life and all the answers, etc. And it's just so nice to hear a story where actually you had done a lot of different other things that had led you to that space. And you know, like you, you stayed in it, you know, and that was very aspirational for me. And I think I've told you this before, but it, like you are hearing your journey has definitely inspired me to like pursue my postgraduate studies because just seeing you as a Fijian woman, as a mother, talk about our narratives as diaspora and, you know, also uniquely from a, like the perspective of someone who was, you know, raised here in Australia. For me, that was very rare going up, being able to see that. And as you said, like I looked for Fijian narratives in books, being away from home, like in whatever I could find in magazines and libraries, all of that. And so I think your journey is amazing and really beautiful. And thank you for for, for sharing that. I wanted to tell Noor a little bit about the community Community reading room, which is one of my favorite initiatives of yours. For people who aren't familiar with the community reading room, it's uh, an initiative that Tarika started. It's an ongoing project that aspires to be a life-affirming space for BIPOC communities, encounter texts that acknowledge, validate, and place their lived experience and creative practice at the center rather than the margin. 
This ongoing project functions as a pop-up destination for research, community discussion, and engagement with ideas about art, culture, and identity, and the decentering and dismantling of colonial narratives. My first engagement with the community reading room was through you, and I think you had extended an invitation to Blackbirds, which was a company that I was with at the time as a co-founder, and we created a performance for your community reading room pop-up um, in Melbourne. Um, responding to this idea of what it means to be third culture and navigate the third space as diaspora. And from there, I've seen like a few other iterations of it. And what has always amazed me about the community reading room is that you have managed to hold space in the creative world, as well as in the like critical discourse world for not just your own community, like the Fijians, but Pacific Islanders, and then also, you know, for First Nations community, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait community and for Black diasporic community from from the African continent. And, and very rarely do I see that happen in the way that you do it with such love and with such care. It's really, really unique and amazing. And I think everybody should check it out for sure. Like, I'm really curious, like, why did you start this initiative? Where did your interest come from and your desire to kind of create this space? And how has it shifted over the years? Mm, that's such a good question. And thank you for the intro to that. Yeah, having that third culture show was just at testing grounds was incredible because it just it took me back to when I was at university as an undergrad and thinking about actually my honours project was all about third space and that kind of liminal kind of hybrid position that a lot of us find ourselves in. And so it was just so amazing. It was like a full circle moment for me because it was really lovely to have that presented. I mean, I guess the reading room kind of, I guess it really sort of came out of years of, you know, like Brandon said earlier, not seeing myself reflected or seeing people like me reflected in in the texts that were being presented in my undergrad. And just, I guess, more than sort of just representation, it was, there was stories and knowledges that were just sort of ignored from, from my educational experience. And I knew they were there. I just sort of, they were never a part of the central curriculum which I found really frustrating but at the same time I kind of felt like but this is the job of a of a student and I, I mean I wasn't that kind of focused at the time but it didn't stop me not and it doesn't stop anybody really but not not seeing them around just meant that I had to look harder I don't know how but just find the confidence to say to my teachers look I'm not really interested in any of the essay questions that you've got here can I can I do a project on this particular person and I guess I was lucky because I didn't have people shouting me down or dismissing my questions which I know happens a lot you know through the, the reading room I hear so often and it's so heartbreaking about people's journeys in higher education just coming to an end because of some flippant disrespectful crazy comment that someone makes and just how crushing that can be so you know, there was that kind of years of experience of like feeling like I had to seek out the stuff that I was particularly interested in outside of the mainstream kind of curriculum. And then I guess the thing that kind of um, really sort of initiated my thinking that I could actually just sort of start it as an idea was a, a visit to an archive, a library in the United Kingdom. Um, I think it was in... 2011 and I went to the Stuart Hall Library at the Institute of International Visual Arts. As an undergrad I'd been really interested in Stuart Hall's writing and then to find this 
particular library which really focused on black British art and and non-Western art discourse was just like it was amazing to me and I just you know I was reflecting when I was there on how sad it is that we don't have places like this that are accessible so there might be little collections tucked away inside bigger institutions you know like there are certain galleries in Australia that have fantastic collections of um, this kind of stuff but it's not accessible to everybody so that was kind of what I was thinking about when I came back and then I I was living in Canberra at the time and starting to connect with with other Pacific artists sort of virtually just email at that time and then when I moved back to Melbourne we, we sort of connected more and started talking about different ideas and different things that we were all experiencing and the similarities of our experiences through higher education and that kind of lack of critical conversation and context for the creative works that we're making at university and this was certainly my experience is that when I was making work about my Fijian heritage often the room would just kind of just fall silent and I don't mean in a good way (laughs) it's just like people didn't know what questions to ask or weren't interested but it was just kind of everything you just sort of you know, show a video work and people be like, mm-hmm, okay. And there was no kind of interrogation or, so that was kind of frustrating that you kind of, we're all going into the same classroom, yet I have to meet you at where your work is, but there was no expectation for people to make the effort to meet me where my work was. And I know this is a really common experience from, you know, other conversations I've had with people who experience a similar thing. So, yeah, I thought about what what it would be like to kind of have a space that was like Stuart Hall Library, which was a reading room or a library that just was a collection of books that were about us, about people of colour, about Pacific Islanders, about the art that we make on our terms and really kind of, I guess, create a space for people who were looking to see these practices that weren't represented in institutional collections, but also to make them accessible. So the first iteration of the reading room was in a shop front in Footscray in amazing little art space called the Colourbox Studios by filmmaker Amy Patalambasi. And that was such a, an amazing space to be able to offer this first iteration and you know through that through the collection people would just sort of drop in and have conversations and see things and you know I changed the collection in the window every day people would have little um, like a little reading group and meetings in the space and just browse the collection and so that was the first iteration and then it went to Footscray Arts Community Centre and what I find really interesting is the way when it moves around there's different communities that interact with it in different ways And that's partially because of the space, the institution that it's in, but also the geographic location. So, and it's never, it's sort of grown from being just a, a, I guess, a static collection of my books and, and, you know, and it's supposed to be read in as someone's personal collection. It's not, it's not sort of, it's not a breadth of, you know, one particular kind of topic or genre. It's, the idea is that it's kind of a provocation to, to have you think about, you know, what kind of libraries have I encountered in the past? And and if if what has that meant about my journey through the world and my understanding and my interactions with other people and how I experience and understand the world, if those collections have been my all I've had access to. And so it's kind of like this this idea that like another world is possible, you know, and I, I find it really interesting when I have the reading room in spaces where they're not tucked away in an institution but quite public, like testing grounds, and how quite often 
white folks will come in and sort of stand in the space and look around and then you see this kind of moment of, oh, okay, this is not for me and then they'll leave. And I think about how as people of colour we are expected to go into libraries but we don't turn around and go, well, this is not for me, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing speaks to me here. So I find that kind of observational aspect of watching how people kind of assess the collection and what it says to them and how they kind of switch off or yeah I think that's a really interesting thing to kind of to observe in different kind of iterations but I think it's moved over time you know it's kind of morphed from being a static collection of you know my books and bits of exhibition ephemera because that was one of the things that I found really resonated with me from the Stuart Hall Library was it it wasn't just you know published textbooks and you know well-known publishing houses and scholarly texts but there were you know VHS videos of of smaller conversations and interviews and an exhibition ephemera you know the stuff that is harder to find and I've been really lucky to have you know a really long friendship with artist and curator Emma Tavola in South Auckland and she's been such a an important person in the the art scene in South Auckland and so she's always sent me you know any kind of exhibition collateral that she's had and she always sends me a whole bundle and so it's just it's beautiful to be able to kind of share that with the community is like this is what's happening across the Pacific you know like because we wouldn't find that stuff in libraries and so yeah it feel, it's really nice to be able to kind of share that that part of art history that we don't we just don't get access to otherwise really important conversations I think what you were saying about you know just like most recently the idea of community reading room being really present and really public and not tucked away behind these institutions is yeah very much so a conversation that I'm having with different people in different spaces but also like what it means like just observing the the body language right of of people approaching your collection and this and you know what's in that space and and them you know looking at it and deciding whether it is for them whether it's a safe space for them to engage or whether it's not whether it's not for them that must be I mean that's a really interesting byproduct right of of you wanting to create a safe space is watching how these like these interpersonal relations kind of play out so amazing I think what you said as well like about even within like you know you've because you've only have you ever done it outside of Victoria? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you're listening and you have some funding interstate, internationally, like now's your chance to hop on Community Reading Room and <laughs> and take, take it out of this world and, and share the goodness. But I think, yeah, what you were saying, like even that, like staying within Victoria, I mean, going to different parts of Victoria, different parts of Melbourne and observing how different communities engage with the, with it, but also literal spaces, right? The architecture of the space changes the way that you program and curate but also the way that communities engage with it is really really interesting and I think important to note right like um, this idea of community is fluid and contested and very specific and local and also global at the same time and thinking about you know like we use the term community in the arts a lot right and often there's a segregation between like community arts and commercial arts without kind of like acknowledging that they are related and often one does not exist. I mean, 
I would argue one does not exist without the other and that community those community spaces are really important but like what is community you know like what does it look to create community um and I'm wondering like for yourself have you been able to answer that like what is community what does community mean to you for people to find people that might be outside their immediate community but but people kind of connect with other like-minded people just through perhaps the kind of events or the kind of things that are happening in that space, if that makes sense. So quite often people will come as and visit the space and the events and things that are happening who don't know anybody else at those events. It's very rare for people to come as a big group to say one of the, it might be a performance event or it might be like a workshop. People usually come as individuals. And so I find that a really interesting aspect that that people kind of finding their community through the reading. I'm not saying that people are finding each other, but it's just, I'm, I'm always intrigued that people come as individuals who don't know anybody. And for some reason, there's some aspect of the space or the collection or the events that makes people feel like they might find other people there that they can connect with. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed that, Emily, through some of the events that you've been to. I remember you came to Black Tourmaline. Well, I'm just thinking about some of the events too that Aisha Trambus curated for that project as well. And people, you know, you'd have a room full of 30 people at a workshop and maybe one or two people knew each other, if that. I don't have a sense of community really still because I exist, I feel like I exist to so many communities in various kind of compartments of my life. (laughs) And so, yeah, I I still feel kind of like I'm just drifting in and around things to some extent. I was just going to say, I think like I can see the lines between your multiple interests growing up and, and and also in your creative practice and how you connect with different communities and how that manifests in different ways, like the language that people use to describe what is the, you know, a communal space, but also like the protocol that kind of like denotes what is a communal space and how that's run. I've asked myself, like, what is the difference between the community that I belong to through bloodline, you know, like through my Fijian community, my Tokelauan community that is literally just my family and the difference between like the community that is like chosen family, the people that I meet in those spaces where I'm just kind of like looking for who like-minded people but maybe not necessarily knowing what it is about our minds that are alike (laughs) that will bring us together until we kind of like share space together. So yeah, I can see how belonging to different communities can also kind of like blur or kind of like escape the possibility of actually defining what community is itself. Again, just grateful for these stories. I think with the community room, I'm just really fascinated with, you know, the intention that went behind it and the, I guess, the story that behind it as well in terms of just the lack of representation in your schooling and then creating a space that's accessible to the community. Really wanted to kind of re-embody the the Stuart Hall library that you saw Similarly to the question that Emily posed, right, the cultural protocols, you know, with the reading room, I see like, you know, the intention is really much, this is culture and identity and decentering, dismantling of colonial narratives. And, you know, from my kind of experience, my background, I'm, you know, in terms of just community, I'm always curious, you know, when we, when we do these type of like heavy deconstruction and analysis, oftentimes it's potentially triggering for BIPOC folks. And so going back to this question of just protocols, I'm just curious, um, as someone who has kind of facilitated this space, how did you hold space for people's hurt, you know, and their, their trauma? Or, you know, if those things had come up for them, like, what did that look like for you as the facilitator? 
Yeah, that's actually, that's an amazing question. Cause I remember after that testing grounds, the first iteration was 2017, I think. And it was the first time that people really sat down and shared. There weren't a lot of sort of like programmed workshops. There were a few events that sort of happened, but they were mostly artists talking about their work. And so what tended to happen was people would sort of wander past the space and just sort of come in and look at the collection and then sit down. And then it sort of, they would ask for particular texts quite often. Uh, I think, you know, someone came in and asked about, you know, who should I look at if I'm looking for, it's crazy that you should say that, Brandon, but like, who should I look at in this collection if I'm, if I want to look up like emotional labor. And so oftentimes, uh, Stephanie Can- Kamenyana Kanyandikwe, who's a Rwandan British artist and composer, was the reader in residence at the time. She's far more um, sort of approachable and outgoing than I am. And so she would end up in conversations with people all the time. And, you know, and I did too. And it was just sort of, we realized at the end how much we'd sort of held like people's, yeah, what you said, people's trauma and their questions and their stories. And we didn't really expect it, to be honest. It was a bit of, we had to kind of debrief after that. But that was, um, it was really amazing to have her there because I think if you were kind of doing it on your own, yeah, I felt like there were a lot of people who sort of just really wanted to connect with, with, with people and it was a very different, you know, when people, when the, um, reading room is in an institution, people are usually going there with purpose. So they're there to see a show that's in another part of the venue or they're going there to participate in a particular workshop in a different part of the space. And so there's this very different kind of sense of the way people interact to just stumbling across something and not going there with any particular agenda or expectation and also not really understanding what it is. Yeah, that was a really interesting kind of experience. And I haven't studied public art. Yeah, the knowledges and histories in the collection that that they may not have before. I remember when... um, Maori photographer Kirsten Little did an artist talk to a group of women photographers one night in that same iteration at Testing Grounds and she said I feel like I'm really held by the ancestors in this collection and that just makes me feel really strong when I'm presenting you know it's so different to be surrounded by a collection of books that see you and that you can see yourself in rather than this kind of sterile you know western academic space yeah that uh thank you so much Tarika again for sharing so honestly with your heart (laughs) um yeah I think you're right it's hard I think even you know to be honest as someone who is studying public art like it is difficult to know what you're going to encounter and how to hold space for that you know how to prepare for that hold space for it while it's happening and then decompress afterwards you know it's really hard to prepare for all of those variables because humans are unpredictable and we never know like what people are going to feel the impulse to share in space and how we are going to respond to that so I don't think that it's a dilemma that's you know unique just to to you and your experience as someone who hadn't necessarily studied public art but I think it's something that we are constantly negotiating as people who create spaces, you know, like the, that's kind of, I feel like um, something that we have to 
I don't know if accept is the word, but something that we should acknowledge is that, um, you know, creating space means that we're, you know, taking steps that other people haven't taken steps before. And it makes me think about, you know, the first, like the fact that I can eat a mango now. How many ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago ate so many different types of fruits or different versions of mangoes until they discovered the one that I can eat now that is safe? And so, you know, like hearing your story about creating these spaces and trying to work out how to negotiate them in a way that is safe for everyone involved. And, you know, sometimes it feels good and sometimes it doesn't. I think about, you know, like it's, it's just naturally part of the journey, but also like it's a hard, it's a hard part of the journey to live with. We're not always going to get it right. Um, But sometimes not getting right, you know, is also good. Like it's part of, part of the process. And it's definitely something that I've experienced um, and continue to experience. And um, I'm sure Brandon, you can speak to that as well and yeah it's hard it's really really hard and what you said just then you know like you responding to humans in a human way is um so beautiful I think you put that so beautifully so yeah thank you so much for sharing that yeah I'm even just thinking about the conversation when you mentioned earlier that um you know it was interesting to observe when white folks would you know kind of step into the space and then realize oh this isn't for me and then step out i'm a huge advocate for just safe spaces and i think there are spaces where bipoc need to have for themselves and need to have conversations but also i just you know it makes me very sad that that was the reaction just because you know when people don't sit in these spaces and they don't sit you know with our grief and our pain they don't really listen to these things they miss out right and and i think that's a healing journey that they need to go for um, and they need to be upon. They want to be able to be in these spaces with us. It's healing both ways just to be able to sit and listen. And so just, you know, that's a plug for folks who are listening to the podcast. Um, if you are white, like, you know, with respect, enter into these spaces um, and just listen. Yeah. As we're kind of like moving towards the end of uh, our Thalanoa, I want to touch on two things. The first is just casually your your doctoral thesis. <laughs> you're a doctor, you're you're a lecturer, and um, I'm really keen to like you know as we we've, we've touched on the academic institution and the way that you hold spaces for communities outside of that. How like your your interest or research area has like informed um, has informed you know, both of those things, how you move through the institution and outside of it. And um, so I just wanted to speak to your your doctoral thesis, Somatic Sotia, Commodity Agency and the Fijian Military Body. So for anyone who hasn't read this or isn't familiar with Tariqa's body of work, I'm going to give a brief overview, which is that this thesis speaks to Fiji's past, present and future relationship with a very controversial topic. And in this thesis, she explores how Fijian bodies have become a valuable commodity in the economy of war. Remittances from workers overseas are Fiji's largest income, exceeding that of tourism and sugar exports. And I remember there was a report that came out recently that was um, very, you know, it generated a lot of discussion online, definitely for Team Fiji on Twitter about um, how during the pandemic, um, there was a large amount, the highest amount ever of um, remittances sent from workers overseas to Fijians back home. And, you know, the implications of that on the political situation and the economy. Your thesis explores the trajectory of historical and contemporary representations of the Fijian military body that perpetuate the exploitation of Fijians by marking the Fijian male body as warrior, criminal, and protector. 
this practice-based research explores the spaces where the dialectics of, of race, embodiment, masculinity, globalization, militarism, colonialism, and agency meet, diverge, and collide. This is so huge and a conversation that, to be honest, prior to meeting you, I really had not engaged with it in a way that was meaningful beyond like conversations with family members who served in the British Army, served overseas and in the Middle East, and were dealing with, you know, those narratives, what it meant for them to, to leave their families, what it meant for them to return home and what it meant for them to be overseas and isolated. And so beyond like the personal narrative, I never really had kind of unpacked what it meant to have Fijian bodies um, in the, as a commodity in the economy of war. So I'm interested, like Tarika, like what drew you to begin your research on this topic and where did it begin? So I think from memory, it comes from a place of anger, that's for sure. So I, I have like a, like a, a news alert for Fiji, I think. And so I would just get articles in my email and I think this was around about 2005 and I was noticing all these stories in Fiji media about other international media as well about more and more ex-British Fijian military personnel or private security workers who were applying for work overseas for various companies for private work not not with the national army and the fact that there was a lot of sort of exploitation going on, people recruiting and taking application fees that were quite large amounts that, you know, whole villages would have to kind of contribute to so that someone could, could go and apply for this employment overseas. And that there was kind of this big rort around that. But there were also thousands of people going and doing this work, predominantly men, predominantly people who had been working in other military situations, employment but what was happening was they were getting there and, um, you know, according to these reports, they were not being paid what they'd promised. They're, you know, really dodgy contracts going into roles that they were not expecting to go into. And I remember reading one article where it was referred to as, you know, the dangerous, dirty and dull work of, um, of warfare. There were a few articles about, you know, 2,000, up to 2,000 uh, private military security personnel, Fijian personnel who were actually stranded because they just their contracts didn't sort of cover them coming home it was really complicated but I was just getting you know angrier and angrier about this stuff as I was reading it I went back to a conference actually in 2000 and I think it was 2006 where I first met actually um, Leilani Kake and Emma Tavola at the uh, University of the South Pacific and as I was reading their testimony in this book which had been published I think uh, in the early 90s, maybe 1994, by the Pacific Concerns Resource Centre. And the, the, the kind of the manipulation and the lack of accountability and all the kind of the similar kind of story of exploitation was really resonating with the stories that I was reading in the media at the time. And so in my mind, there was this kind of connection that I wanted to make between what was, you know, what had happened historically through this recruitment of young Fijian Navy personnel and then what was currently happening. And then I was thinking about, you know, the ways in which kind of Fijian masculinity is is represented internationally and globally. It's really complicated. And like in the in the dissertation I talk about, you know, like I talked about my own experience, how their Fijianness, their blackness is is read out of context in, you know, when they're in the Middle East or when they're in a British army context, for example. But I was also thinking about, you know, that 
that similarity of kind of, of exploitation and yeah I just wanted to kind of connect and I was thinking about you know in Australia where you know media reports here you only hear about Pacific communities if someone is excelling in sport or if someone's doing too well in sport and maybe you know maybe you're older than you say you are because you are so tall or you're so fit or you're so uh, so much bigger than the other kids you know like there I collected so many news articles about young Pacific Islander rugby players who were in primary school who were being ostracised by other families. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of observing that with my own children at the moment and their kind of journey through athletics. And it's just, it's a really interesting space that I'm kind of exploring. But so I was looking at those kind of news reports and then thinking about my dad's work as a bouncer for many years um, at a pub in Sydney. And then all those kind of, you know, crime stories that resonate through Australian media all the time, and we all know them, those of us who live here, that we never really have any other narratives that are, that are dominant when it comes to Pacific Islander identity. So I was kind of thinking about all of that stuff, you know, this sort of the tail end of, or well, this kind of bookends of military exploitation in the 1950s through to, you know, it, it still happens today. I've still got my Google alert on that sends me every time there's an article about someone in the British Army who's served there for 20 years being told that they can't get, you know, medical help or that they're going to have to leave the country now and like just all this kind of really kind of shameful stuff that happens. And then I was thinking about, you know, the flip side of that and and reading accounts from from military personnel who've, who've done this work and, and how much they love the opportunity to travel and see other parts of the world and contribute to something that they feel very strongly about in terms of world peace and justice. So it's really complex and I tried to kind of think through some of that stuff but also, weirdly, I guess if you, if you read it, kind of see it in a kind of a history of, of other artists who have also kind of tried to deal with this in their own practices. And so photographers and filmmakers and installation artists who are kind of also grappling with this stuff. So that's sort of the background and the genesis of that particular project. Wow, thank you for sharing. I had quite an emotional reaction listening to you explain that, just thinking on the representation and the language used to kind of describe Pacific bodies, to describe the Black Pacific, and like your reflections on that and how that, you know, connects to your family, to your dad and your dad's work, to your daughters, made me think about, you know, like even with my with my son, he's nine months now and already like this narrative is emerging where he's nine months but he's fitting clothes that for two-year-olds <laughs> so, so he's he's tall he's very tall and he's and he's very broad and he's very strong and very full of life but already because of the model of you know the size of clothes the design of clothes for kids and the expectation of like where you know kids are supposed to be in their development and their strength and their engagement with the world at nine months so you know, not contextualized, you know, being here in, in, in Australia, they're not contextualized within, within uh, Fijian communities. Um, he's very much like the odd one out. And it's very much the first thing that people kind of talk about when they, when they meet him and how like, yeah, that is becoming, forming an identity for him. And I'm wondering like for you, Tarika, like in, in your engagement with these discussions and these thoughts like because it is so personal right like it, you're speaking about 
Fijians and Fijian culture, but also like Fijians' engagement with with colonialism and militarism, there is a in somewhat an inability to to separate yourself from this and how like bring yourself to these spaces and engage with these conversations without what we said before, how you do that without harming yourself, exposing yourself. And do you like, do you still bring this conversation into spaces with you? Hmm. That's a beautiful question. I mean, I think I remember just being in tears reading that Carissa Marcy book. So I think, I guess you just, it's sort of like moving through grief. It's sort of, you know, there's just, first of all, there's like, there's shock and then like the tears because of the hurt of, of, you know, reading this testimony. And then the fuel is anger for me, but it's, I don't see it as destructive anger. I see it as productive anger that just kind of, it's anger and curiosity, I think. So it's just, I guess, an ability to not accept and not sit with it as in melancholia (laughs) and like, I can't do anything. And while art might not be considered to have any kind of policy impact I still feel like it's incredibly important to add to the historical narrative and to provide alternate versions of the truth history however you want to perceive that so I think it's just this kind of you know just a fire in my belly that just won't let me not do it you know I'm sure you understand (laughs) both of you (laughs) oh I was just gonna say that like for me, this as I'm listening to you, I'm I'm wondering like, was there ever any point where you asked yourself or, you know, you second guessed and said, like, should I continue speaking on Fijian narratives? And like you said, like, should I continue offering, you know, these alternate alternative narratives to the ones that we're being kind of told about ourselves and our communities at, at any point where you're like, actually this is like too close to home and I I can't do it. But hearing you say like that transforming the anger and the grief into something that's you know actionable and something that you can embody and something that helps people reflect it it, it's very much something that I can identify with but also like can't quite put my finger on as to why (laughs) like I can't I'm like that's the reason but I don't know why that's enough but for now it feels like it is yeah it's enough and yeah, so that, that, that's all I was going to say in relation to that. What were you going to say, B? Yeah, no, no. I'm grateful that you asked that question, Amelia, because I, I was thinking similarly, you know, in my experience in grad school and academia, it's very much, you know, they, they've emphasized that whole Cartesian, I think, therefore I am, right? And so I think I, I struggled a lot um, because there was just a disembodiment with the information that I was reading. Kind of like, you know, what you're talking about, uh, Tariqa, like working through these historical narratives and through the trauma within my own body, but then also like having to sit in it and then still like write the paper. There was always tension, I think, for me to do that type of work. Um, And there was never any like, which was fascinating to me, but there was never anybody who like, there was no resources to like help you do that, right? Like when I think about, you know, like my my bodily counterparts, like I think it was very easy for them to read something, a paper, and then write write an analysis of it and then submit it. But for me, I think there was just like, and this goes back to what you were saying before, right? The work of having to contextualize. It was me reading this paper, sitting with it, wrestling with what this person had said and how it drastically shaped Christianity in the Pacific and like how it affected our own bodies. And then me responding to this paper, not from a place where it was objective, but like it was very much my lived experience. So yeah, I, you know, in terms of your paper, I'm just... I'm really curious, and I wanted to ask this question, since we're focusing so much on Fijian bodies, 
where was your body as you were writing this paper? <laughs> that is such an amazing question. You guys are incredible. Well, actually, you know, what was really interesting in this whole process that it, it occurred at a time where I was having my first child. And so I was thinking about, and I actually, you know, I met and married a man of Pacific heritage who happened to be in the army and it was not connected at all to my project. I met him randomly. So my own connection to my my body and my sense of becoming a parent made me think more and more about, you know, well, of course, like life and birth and ceremony. And I think that's probably like, rather than speak on it, I'd probably just ask you to look at the work, ecology, economy, which is a really kind of silly way to kind of <laughs> deflect. I'm not trying to deflect, but I'm just, I think that work actually is actually me working through exactly what you've just asked, Brandon. It was about me thinking about, because I was pregnant and because I was about to have my first child, I was thinking about how, at what point do we stop? I'll probably cry saying this because <laughs> I do all the time with this work. But at what point do we say that it's it's okay to send our babies, you know, um, and thinking about, you know, the mats that we're given as babies and then that we are wrapped, we wrapped our loved ones in. I'm just thinking about that, that cycle. And so that work speaks directly to that because it was about that, that process of birth and death and, and the kind of the colonial and corporate impetus to kind of devalue our lives and how we kind of are all drawn into that in some way that's that's what that work is about it's it's really it was about maybe if I hadn't been pregnant when I was kind of thinking through that stuff maybe I would have thought about things differently but I think yeah that experience of yeah becoming a parent and starting a new life with with someone who who was in the military, which I still struggle with, you know, from a, from a personal and political kind of perspective, I, I really struggle with that. So I think that was an interesting time to kind of wrestle with all of that, I think. But I did, I did think about it. I, I wrote about it. I don't think I included it in my final thesis. I, I don't think I did, but I do remember writing a reflective piece thinking about, about that. Thank you both because I wouldn't be able to share if you weren't holding such an amazing space and your conversation is so incredible. So thank you both. Thank you. I just want to thank you and I just want to honor you for um, sharing that and then just also your vulnerability. I think there were multiple instances in the Stalinol where you just were very vulnerable and um, I just want to name that. Like I appreciate you and I appreciate just the vulnerability that you brought to this space and this conversation. Just so grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sharika. I'm sitting with that, what you've just shared and the way in which you shared it. And truly, like, as I said at the beginning, we are so humbled to have shared this Tolanol with you. And thank you, Brandon, again, for holding space and for asking such beautiful questions, such responsive questions. Um, yeah, it's definitely a privilege to be in conversation with both of you. I have one final question, which I think speaks to everything that we've we've covered in this conversation today but also our hopes you know for this for this podcast in terms of the conversations we have with you know everybody about what it means to create space for ourselves what it means to carve out our own paths and reimagine our future and you know by doing so uplift our peoples 
so Tarika, as a daughter, as as a mother, as a, a lecturer and an oceanic thought leader, what does a reimagined educational experience look like for you? I think it exists outside the corporation of higher education. I read something the other day. It was just it was so beautiful. I wish I could remember where it was. I feel like I took a photo of it and was going to send it to you, Emily. It was in the book, Daughters of the Pacific by Zoldishka. I may have sent it to you. And it was this passage where she says, where one of the women who was being interviewed says, I feel really betrayed when my children go off to school because I want to teach them, you know, I want to teach them weaving or fishing and I want to teach them these things. And then they go back, they go to school and they come home and they don't value any of that stuff was sort of the implied. And I just, oh, it really struck me. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to speak on as someone who's a part of an institution, but I think there's lots, lots of us. I mean, I'm humbled by the fact that I think there are many people in the institution who are trying and working really hard to make it a better, a better, um, a better place. I don't think educational institutions are be all and end all, and I don't think they should be everybody's destination. I think you should only, I think you should only kind of go into that space when you're ready and know, yeah, just when you're ready. I don't think anyone should go into something that's potentially going to be hostile. Education is is not something that just happens in one space with four or five people and experiences, a wide range of experiences so that they can carve out their own curiosity and develop an understanding of their own their own trajectories and what they they want to explore on their own terms without feeling like their lived experience or their their value their, their knowledge isn't valued that their ex, their experiences beyond any kind of institution are going to just enhance their journey through life I mean I'm, I think I know what I'm trying to say <laughs> Um, I'm sure there is a far more articulate way to kind of to kind of phrase that. But, you know, I just I don't think that I don't think universities will ever change to I think other alternate spaces are necessary. I think that's I think that's just what I believe. I think that that, you know, different educational spaces serve different purposes. And I just wish that people when they knew that they wanted to be there didn't encounter situations that make their journey stop that angers and upsets me more than anything but I do feel really confident and that there are so many incredible scholars coming through for those who choose to uh, who choose a tertiary pathway a higher educational pathway I feel like these spaces are at least going to be populated by more people who look like us and more people who understand our wide and varied lived experiences and the things that we hold important and the knowledges and the values that we bring to the space will not be silenced or ignored. I really do believe that, yeah, that things are changing. I know that sounds really kind of pathetic and optimistic, but um, I can see it. I mean, you, you guys must be able to see that too, for sure. I think I know what you're trying to say as well. <laughs> I think you've said it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just to affirm where, you, where, where, you're, where you're going. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to echo similarly with Emily was saying. Um, thank you, Tarika, on behalf of 
um, myself and just also the other listeners that can um, cross Oceania uh, in the Pacific, in the U.S., in Australia, in Aotearoa. Really grateful for uh, generosity, the gift that you gave us today and uh, sharing time and space. Thank you. Vinakavaka level, Tarika. We are so, so blessed to have had you share time and space with us today. And your answer was such a perfect ending and shared just as it was meant to. So. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Grateful to you, B, for being in this space and, and responding and um, just continuing to be in conversation with you and the various ways that you are um, embodying being an oceanic thought leader. Um, thank you again for sharing with such heart, with such honesty and vulnerability. You're amazing. Brandon and Emily, I'm so grateful to have been invited to this conversation and I want to thank you both for the work that you do and for creating this resource and this podcast. Um, it's so, so important. So, Benaka. I want to leave you today thinking on the spaces and ways that we transfer knowledge as Zawatakin. How do we embody knowledge in our dreams, our flesh and our tongues? Where do we feel most comfortable sharing knowledge? In our kitchens, our gardens, our seas, as mentioned in our Talanoa, Tarika's work, Ecology Economy, speaks simultaneously to Fijian bodily practices and through indigenous ways of knowing through the body, while linking indigenous embodiment to broader somesthetic narratives of corporeality and the geographic movement of bodies transnationally. This feels particularly relative and visible given the historic Olympic gold and bronze wins by Fiji's men's and women's rugby seven teams in Tokyo. So I leave you today with this final question. How will you create opportunities to validate embodied knowledges within yourself and within our soul what kin. Gaunan